0: We are in our series called Give, and uh, you know we have begun the season of giving in, this, in, in our society, November, December. It's the holiday season. Over the next six to seven weeks, there's gonna be a lot of giving, right? Obviously, gifts uh, are a part of that, but also, uh, we're gonna be giving um, thanks in a couple weeks. We're gonna sit around a table and express our thankfulness to the, for the things that, that we are blessed with in our life. We, we give love during this time of year, right? We give uh, forgiveness, is, is, there's a, it's a breeding ground to let the, the, the um, tenant of forgiveness operate in your life when you're around family a lot over the holidays amen and, uh, and so we, we hope to give in that too, but it's just a season of generosity. In fact, last week we talked about um, living a life of generosity in response to god's generosity to us because of how generous he's been in our life and we respond by being generous to others in our life. Well today I want to talk to uh, talk about how we give back to God because of what he gave to us. Not necessarily giving to others, but what we give to God. And I want to take this moment right here at the top to, to get your mind off of the financial aspect of it, okay? Today's message is not about money, okay? There's, money is one thing that we offer to God in our relationship with him, but there's a lot more than just that, that we give to God in our life. So uh, I wanted to make sure we, we, we set that standard from the get-go because I don't want your, your mind to always go to the financial side of life. When we're talking about what we give to God, even though that is an aspect of it. So, uh, I'm going to read my text verse. It's out of Mark 12. I'm going to ask you to stand with me again one more time as we read God's word together. Uh, this is where uh, the Pharisees had sent some people to try to trap Jesus in his words. They, they did not like Jesus. He was the new kid on the block, and he was doing some pretty great things, but it was going against their system, and so they would try to trap him. And this is one of those incidences where they tried to do that. In Mark 12, Verses 14 through 17. They asked him, they said, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. And they were amazed at him. The title of my message today is Giving God What's God's. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time that we have together. Lord, we are here for you. Let your name and your name alone be glorified in this place today. Open our hearts, Lord. We want to receive your word because we know that your word brings life into our souls. So God, do the work today that only you can do, and seal it in our heart by your Holy Spirit. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Giving to God what's God's. That's, that's hard to say, actually, but I did that on purpose, so we have to think about it. Have you ever tried to buy a gift for someone that pretty much had everything? You know, this time of year, you'll hear that, actually. That's a marketing angle for some Uh, Some companies, they'll say, oh, this is a gift for the person that has everything. You know, they're gonna want this even though they have everything they could ever need. You probably have people like that in your life or someone that just doesn't need much and so it's hard to buy them a a gift and uh, it can actually make it stressful for you in life when you think about what am I gonna get this person because here comes another occasion where I have to get them something but they really don't need anything and they have everything they could want. It makes it kind of difficult for us, right? And this is a season where it, it comes into play more than, more than most seasons. And uh, you know, you might even think that about God. Like how can I give something to God when God has everything? Psalm 24 tells us that the earth is his and everything in it. So God literally has everything. Not to mention he's omnipresent. He's omniscient, right? He has, he's everywhere. He's all powerful. He's omnipotent. And so there is nothing that God actually needs. So how can I give, how can we talk about giving back to God when God has everything that he could ever need. But here's the deal. This is what we have to remember. In the very beginning of the Bible, God says, let's, let us create man in our image. So you and I have been created in the image of God. And just like you and I don't like to be involved in a one-way relationship where we're doing all the giving in the relationship, neither does God. God hasn't called us to live in a one-way relationship where he gave everything and we are just the recipients of that, but we have nothing to give back to him. Even though he has everything, he still desires things from us, that we would live a life where we would be giving back to him as well in our life. And it's easy for us to believe the lie that he doesn't need anything from us. But in reality, he does. He wants relationship with us. He wants our lives. And, you know, there's a, if you have, if you've seen human relationships where it's a one-sided relationship and you may have even been involved in that, whether it's a friendship or if it's a romantic thing where, you know, a guy is just really chasing this girl because he really likes her and she's just kind of letting him uh, chase her and pursue her, but it's really just one-sided. And, you know, he buys her way too nice of a gift for her birthday based on their relationship or gets her a gift because, you know, they're celebrating their one-year Facebook friends anniversary something like that and they're just doing they're going above and beyond all the time it, it, when you see that we've all seen it it reeks of desperation right it reeks of you know you really want to tell that person you know you, that person they're just not into you you should probably just leave them alone you know because when you see it you you notice it right away it's toxic and it's not something that's healthy well it's the same thing in our relationship with God it's it's not meant for him to be doing all the pursuing but if we're not careful, we can believe the lie that, well, he loves me so much, he gave so much, he's, he's desperately in love with me, right? I mean, it's because he loved me so much that he gave his son to die for me, right? The, the, the most popular text in all the Bible, John three sixteen. 16. He, he loves me so much, nothing can separate me from his love. He loves me so much, so that means I can treat him like I would somebody that's pursuing me that I don't really have too much interest in. I'll just throw him a bone every once in a while to keep him interested or to, to give them a little something, and because I give, that, give him a little bit of attention, he's so happy to get that little bit of attention, he'll be happy. Because that's what happens in these human relationships, right? You get, the, the person gets a little bit of attention, and they're so happy that they got a little bit that they'll continue to just over-pursue. When in reality, we can't do that in our relationship with God. That's not how we approach our relationship with God. In fact, any one-sided relationship, as we know, whether it's with you and God or you and a human, is bound to crash and burn. It cannot flourish, it cannot be sustained. All relationship is meant to be reciprocal, back and forth. So we have something to give to God in our life. And it is a false doctrine to think that God is just okay with our half-hearted commitment to him. It really is. He wants all of it. God is not that, you know, that person that will allow someone to, um, or, or that will continually pursue and pursue this one-sided relationship with another person, that person is usually, there's some insecurity there, there's probably a little desperation there. The God we serve is not insecure or desperate. The God we serve has an expectation on our life that because of what he did for us, he expects us to give our lives for him and to pursue him in the same way, in this, with the same vigor, with the same passion that he has pursued us. In fact, the Bible likens us to being the bride of Christ is what the Bible says. So that's the relationship that God wants with us is that we would be his bride, he is the bridegroom in this relationship. Now, if you're married in this place today, I seriously doubt that your spouse is okay with giving giving them your leftovers or a half-hearted commitment to them, right? I don't like to speak for my wife very often, but I can say very confidently that she would not be okay with, me just, with, our, with our relationship being one-sided. Unless it was me to her, she might be okay with that. Because <laughs> it's fun to be the recipient of the one-sided relationship, right? No, of course she wouldn't be. None of us would be, because that's not what a real love relationship looks like. And we are, we are the bride of Christ, so there is an expectation that we would give our life just like he gave Us, he gave so much for us, right? He literally gave his life so that we could have eternal life. That's no small thing. He gave his life so that we would have eternal life, and he gives us grace. He gives us the, the favor that we don't deserve in our life, he gives us because of what he did for us. So, he expects us to be full of grace in our life and even towards him to love him to give ourselves more than we could even give on our own to give to him in our relationship with him. He gives us rest, according to Matthew 11. The rest of God is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Rest in the storm. He gives us rest. He gives us good gifts. The Bible says if you being evil know how to give give, give good gifts, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts? So he, he just continually gives, Romans tells us that he gives us his righteousness, that we are the righteousness of Christ because of what he did for us. We literally have his righteousness in us by receiving what he did for us. That's powerful. He just continually gives, you can go on and on and on and on of the things God has given us. So there is an expectation on us to give in return. Now this, this giving that we do is not about earning our salvation, it's not about earning our favor with God, It is in response to what he's already done for us out of a love relationship with him. That would be the natural response in a love relationship with your heavenly father. So we have something to give to him. In fact, that's what my text verse says. Jesus says, give to God what is God's. And in this verse, he's intentionally vague. He doesn't really say, he doesn't go down and give a list of things that, that is, that is God's, that he would want us to give to him. And part of the reason he was vague here probably was because he was talking to the Pharisees and he knew the Pharisees' hearts were hardened. They weren't gonna receive it anyway. In fact, that's probably what they wanted was a list. You know, I could have seen these guys pulling out their notebook in their pan. Okay, give to God what's God's, what is it? You know, we're giving 10% of all of our, all of our increase. You want 15, we'll give you 15, okay. What else? Uh, you know, I got tassels on my robe. Do I need some more tassels sewn on my robe? We can do that too. Do I need to fast more often? I can do that too. Jesus wasn't looking to give them a list of things that they could do in their life because what you have to understand is reading the whole word of God and understanding the character of God and the heart of God, we know that what is God's is a lot more than just a couple line items or a spreadsheet with things that we can do to show God that we love him because that's not what it's about. When we talk about giving God what's his, it's about giving him our life. It's about giving him everything. And I'm gonna gonna prove that point here in just a minute. Because I wanna give you a few things today. These just, things that I I was praying about this week and I felt like God really put these on my heart as I was thinking about things that we give God because you can break it down and you could give thousands of things that we give God, right? But there's three main ones that I think will resonate with you today and be pertinent in your life. So let me give you the first one. The first thing that we give God is our dedication. We give him our dedication. Our dedication is all about our commitment. It's about our devotion to God. It's about our obedience to God. It's all about dedication. This is about owning our faith. Owning our faith. With me being in, in pastoral ministry, one of the top two, three things that I am passionate about when it comes to pastoring is to help people own their faith. There are few things in this world, in the, in the church, that sadden me more than when I see people that just really don't own their faith. They, they kind of believe, but just barely, you know? I, I, I believe, but mm, it, it's not really evident very much in my life. And you, you see it, you may even be someone that struggles with that. And I'm not here to condemn, but I am here to challenge. And I think it's important that we own our faith. That we, we don't just have this lackadaisical, half-hearted approach to our faith, but that we have a dedication to our faith that we stand out. That it's obvious to those around us that we have a faith and we own it and we, and we are living it out in our lives. In fact, this, this pandemic, one of the things that saddened me the most about it is that it has exposed a lot of Christians who really haven't owned their faith. They've kind of used this as an opportunity to kind of slip out you know, and kind of become invisible. And uh, that is not the heart of God for us. It, it, he wants us to be completely dedicated to him, to be completely devoted, to be obedient to his word. That's, that's one of the strongest aspects of our faith. In fact, when, when, we, when we start thinking about our faith, we have to ask ourselves the question. Here's the question we have to ask. Does my faith cost me anything? Does my faith cost me anything? And I'm not talking about money. Does my faith cost me anything? And I would tell you today, if your faith doesn't cost you anything, you might not have faith. Because faith in Jesus costs us something. It actually costs us a lot. Because if if your lifestyle still mirrors the lifestyle of society, then you have to ask yourself, do I really have faith? But if your lifestyle doesn't mirror the lifestyle of society, it will cost you something. You have no choice. And Jesus tells us very clearly that if we're going to follow him, that we have to count the cost. To not go into this whole walk of faith thing half-heartedly. In fact, I'm going to read for you out of uh, uh, Luke 14, where he talks about this. This is where Jesus was getting really popular in his ministry. People, he was doing a lot of really great stuff, people getting healed, set free from demons, all kinds of really cool stuff. So at this point, he was popular. He, was, he shot up the, the popularity rankings quickly at this point, okay? And, it said, and it's in Luke 14, and look what it says here in verse 25 through 30. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, so he's got a large crowd following him. This is proof that he wasn't just about having a lot of people around him. He was committed to the truth. Look what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, he's obviously not talking about literal hate here. He doesn't want us to hate our family. But what he's talking about in comparison to our love for him, it should almost look like hate to the other people in our life. Then he goes on to say, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Okay, he's using using tough language here. He's not, he's not about just uh, seeker-friendly getting the church to grow. Suppose one of you, he gives an example here, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost, or in other words, count the cost, to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person has began to build and wasn't able to finish. So I love what Jesus does here. He's taken a very spiritual principle, and he's... Using a practical illustration so we will understand it. He's saying you have to count the cost. This has absolutely nothing to do with a tower. Nothing. He's just using this so that we can understand what he's talking about. He's talking about being his disciple. So as he's talking about it, he's saying, Let's let me just throw it out there. Let's say you're trying to build a tower, you're gonna count the cost before you start building. Cause if all you get in is the foundation and you run out of money, all your neighbors are gonna be laughing at you and snickering as they walk by your little foundation of your tower. He's saying, so you're gonna count the cost. And we all understand that because we know what that looks like, right? Many of us have probably even done that where we stepped into something we thought we could afford, but we didn't count the cost and eventually found ourselves in financial trouble or in a relationship trouble that we shouldn't have been in if we would have really counted the cost beforehand. So we all understand that. So that's why he uses that as an illustration. He's saying, you have to count the cost. So if you're gonna be his disciple, we have to count the cost because it's gonna take dedication. There's no place for being half in as a disciple of Jesus. It's not enough. And I would even go as far as to say, it's not enough to come to an altar and say a prayer and say that you're saved and go on and live your life. Even if the prayer was incredibly sincere. Now that could be the beginning of your salvation, but walking out that salvation is something we do every day. It doesn't matter how sincere we were in that moment, We have to continue in that sincerity, living a life dedicated to him. And it will show in our life. We will know because it will cost us something. It's really, the the concept is actually very simple. Your faith has to cost you something, or it's probably not a real faith. Because that's exactly what the word of God tells us. We are, our life is not our own anymore once we give our lives to Jesus. That's literally what you're doing. You're giving it to Jesus, I don't even like the terminology when people say, well, I received Jesus in my heart. I mean, I get it. It's not horrible. But, the, but really, it's not about receiving him. Like, okay, come on in, Jesus. I'll let you come in. Because the salvation is more, it's so much more than that. It's about us giving ourselves to him. It's about us giving our life to him, saying, okay, my life's not mine anymore. It's yours, Jesus. It's yours to do with whatever you want. My purpose now has become your purpose. My will now has become your will. Even in how you're gonna use me is all about your purpose and your glory and your fame and your greatness and your kingdom. And all of my stuff now is, is out. It's all out. It's because it's all about you now. That's what the real Christian life looks like for us. And we have to count the cost if we're going to step into that. The next one is passion. The next thing that we give our God, is passion. This is our heart, this is our trust, this is our faith. Passion is really boiled down to what you're willing to suffer for. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. That's what you're passionate about. Whatever gets you out of bed in the morning is what you're passionate about. And I did this, I put this one after dedication because I wanna be very clear here. You can be dedicated to something and not be passionate about it. You can be dedicated to your job and not have one ounce of passion for it. Your passion is really about getting that paycheck. It has nothing to do with the job, right? You can be dedicated to your marriage and not be passionate about your spouse. And you can be dedicated to God and not passionate about a relationship with him. In fact, there's a term for that. If you're dedicated to God, but you have no passionate relationship with him, it's called religion. That's exactly what it is. That is exactly what the Pharisees were. They were the most dedicated, loyal people following the law of God, but had completely hardened hearts, had no relationship with God. So dedication does not mean relationship. So we start with dedication, but there has to be passion with it. There has to be a commitment of relationship with him. God doesn't just want our dedication. He wants our heart. Because everything And I mean everything about our relationship with God is about our heart, everything. There's not one aspect of our relationship with him that is not about our hearts. As we see, even in the old covenant, God told Samuel, don't look at the outward appearance. That's what man looks at. I don't care about that. Praise God he doesn't care about the outward appearance, amen? He cares about the heart. That's what God really cares about in our life. In fact, Jesus said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's what he said about the Pharisees, about a lot of the Jews. He said, they honor me with their lips. They know how to say it. They know how to be dedicated. They know how to do all the right things, but their hearts are far from me. And it was a rebuke from Jesus because he wants our hearts. So the question in regards to this is, do you have knowledge or do you have intimacy? I will say this, you cannot have the intimacy without the knowledge. You can't be intimate with a a God you don't know. You can't just have this vague understanding of a God and have an intimate relationship with him. You have to know him through his word. You have to be a student of the word. You have to study it. You have to devour it. You have to eat it every day to really know this God that we want to have this intimate relationship with. So you can't have it without the knowledge, but you can have the knowledge without the intimacy. We want both, amen? We want both, the knowledge and the intimacy in our life. Because here's the thing. Intimacy is what drives the car of faith, right? You can have faith without being really intimate with God, but, you know, if you ever driven a car, if you put it down in the low gear, if you go slow enough and don't over-rev the engine, you know, you can still get to where you're going, right? But it's gonna have a lot more wear and tear on your vehicle, and it's gonna take longer to get there. It's not, you're not using it the way it's designed to be used, up and drive, where you have overdrive, and you can set your crews and not worry about it, right? Intimacy is what drives the car of faith in our life. It drives our faith. As we are, as we pursue that love relationship with Him, an intimate relationship with Jesus that He desires in our life, we get perspective in ways we don't get when we're just full of knowledge. And it, it'll drive the car in our life. It'll it'll keep a lot of wear and tear off of our bodies, off of our souls if we are in relationship with him. It doesn't, I'm not suggesting that everything will go perfect for us, that everything just is easy all of a sudden but we know he's with us and we know what it looks like to live in relationship with him because we are doing it firsthand. God wants our hearts. And you know, the verse that has been, as much of a life verse for me as anything that really was instrumental in me when I, when I really started to pursue a relationship with Jesus and not just live in religion, uh, is, it's, it's out of Philippians 3 and it's Paul talking about what Uh, he, He started off by talking about how religious he was and how he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and he had everything going for him, right? And then he met Jesus and ruined everything. Jesus just turned his life upside down. So these next four verses, let me read in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 10. It says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. All right, so first of all, let me break this down a little bit. The word, he uses knowing there twice. He says, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, and then he says, I want to know Christ. That word know there, that is not just to know casually, that is a very intimate knowing. That is the same word that would be used to describe a man knowing a woman and them having a baby together. It's the same thing. And it's not a sexual term it's just a very very intimate term so paul's going on bragging about how he's had it all he had respect he had stature he had money he had everything a man could ever want he he was feared which is what a lot of men want because he had power he had authority yet when he met jesus he said i have lost it all he said i have literally i have lost All those things. And he says, but you know what? It's basically garbage. Compared to knowing Jesus intimately, none of it matters. And church, this should be the heart of every Christian. Every one of us that professes faith in Jesus, this should be our heart. You might say, well, you know what? I'm not there. I don't really feel that way. Well, you know what? That's okay. It's okay that you're not there. Here's the thing. Don't be content not being there. Don't be content to say, well, you know what? That was Paul. Ah, He was you know, like the apostle. Obviously, God had a special plan for him, so he had to do a lot to get him to that place. He did it for Paul so that Paul could write it down so that we could experience it ourselves. Paul was just the vessel. Paul is nobody special. He was a sinner just like you and me. He needed the grace of God just like you and me. He wasn't eloquent in speech. He wasn't Anything to be impressive by by human standards? So it's not that, oh, this is just Paul. This is the standard for everyone that would profess Jesus Christ. Because he has taken all of us out of the miry pit and put our feet on solid ground. Every one of us. And all he asks from us is that we would pursue an intimate, knowing relationship with him. Church, I can tell you, I'm not here every day, but I live my life. To believe this verse right here. That's how I live my life. If, and if I ever get off track, this is where I go. I go right back to this. Lord, I want to believe this too. I want to believe that everything else in comparison to knowing you is basically garbage. And that, don't, don't take this to the extreme and think, oh, well, we shouldn't have relationships. We shouldn't have a house. We shouldn't have any money. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in comparison that it pales so much in comparison that there's nothing in this world I would ever want to put above intimately knowing my Savior. That should be our heart. And you know what? Again, if you're not there, that's okay. You know how you get there? You pray and you ask God to help you. you. You dedicate yourself to him and then you pursue him passionately. And you get there. It doesn't happen overnight. It does not happen overnight. I've been doing this for about 25 years, almost 30 now. And there's still still a lot of days where I'm like, Lord, I just really want to do my own thing. I just want to do nothing today. I don't want to think about you. I don't want to think about anything. I want to do my thing. Can we just be honest? That's who we are. We're human beings. We have those moments. But those are the moments I'm like, okay, I need to press it even more. I need to deny myself and take up my cross even more today because he's worthy of it. Because he deserves it in my life. And here's the irony of it all, church. We we limit how much we can even receive from God based on us not having that intimate relationship with him. And here's why. A lot of what we receive from God is unintelligible to those who aren't there. I'll say it again. A lot of what we receive from God is unintelligible to those who are not at that place of intimacy with him. You'll actually miss it if you're not at an intimate place with him, because not everything we receive from him is this cataclysmic, huge mushroom cloud coming up, showing the world what's happening. A lot of it is subtle. And you notice it more, the more intimate you are with your Lord. So he could be doing things, he could be pouring things into you, you can't even receive it, you can't even understand it, you can't even know that you have it because you're not at that place of intimacy with him. I'm telling you, I know it's true. Because, because the more intimate you get with him, you start to notice things you never noticed before. They were, all re- they were always there. You just notice them more now. Like, wow, God really is good. Wow, he really is faithful. Wow, he really is awesome. My life didn't really change necessarily. My circumstances didn't, but my perspective's different. I see I can actually worship you. I can actually trust you in the midst of the storm. Huh, how about that? What's changed? it's going to be your level of intimacy with him. That's when you get that perspective to be able to receive from him. So you could say all day, God, oh, I want to receive. I want to receive your blessings. God, pour out your blessings in my life. Pour out your spirit. Do your things in my life. Let me see. But if, if you're not pursuing him and you don't even know his word to know his character, you're going to miss a lot of what he's doing. It's important that we do our part too. All right, so let me do the last one here. The, the third thing that he would want from us that we can give to God is our praise. Now, I could stay here for about four weeks, but I've got about 15 minutes left, so we're gonna get it all in 15 minutes. But God wants our praise. He wants our worship. He desires our worship. Not only does he desire it, he commands our worship. Did you know that God wants your praise, your worship, as much as almost everything else that you can actually give him. He desires our worship. He desires that we would give our worship to him. In fact, the Bible tells us that he's seeking for those that will worship him. It's in uh, John 4. It's the words of Jesus. It says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. He is looking for people to worship him. i tell you this, I don't know if that even does anything in you or stirs you up, but if God's looking around for people to worship, I want him to see me. I want him to see me worshiping. Not because I necessarily want anything from him, but he's worthy of it. He deserves it. In fact, there are a lot of reasons why God wants us to worship him. I can boil it down to two today that I think are pertinent. One is that he deserves it. At the end of the day, he deserves our worship. All of us. He deserves it. He's worthy of it. He's earned it. And he deserves it in our life. And number two, because it shows that we get it. When we worship him, it shows that we get it, that we, that we get him. On some level, we understand who he is. We understand his goodness. We understand his faithfulness. We understand his mercy. And you know what? The more we get it, the more we worship. That's how it is in my life. The more I get it, the more I worship. Now, don't take it wrong what I'm saying. I'm not saying the more I get from him, the more I worship. He doesn't have to give me anything. He does, because that's how good he is. But that's not why I worship him. It's me getting it. Like, oh, okay, I do see who you are. I really see, I see that you are my Lord and my Savior. I really see that you are the God that created it all, that you really are the Alpha and the Omega. You're the author and the perfecter of my faith. You're the first and the last. You're the beginning and the end. You are worthy of my worship. So I worship him because I get it. It's a great sign. Because your your level of worship is directly proportional to how much you get it. It really is. And it's not some elite club. We can all get it. (laughs) You just have to want it. He will not keep it from you. But he wants us to get it. Psalm 63. This verse, man, I found this verse this week, and it just, I did something on the inside of me. This is the Psalm of David. Psalm 63, verses three and four, it says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name, I will lift up my hands. This is a beautiful verse, but you know what makes it even better is when you look at the context of it, David is living in the desert. He's running for his life from Saul. So he's running for his life, but he still has it in him to say, your love is better than life. That's a guy who gets it. That's a guy who gets it. It's not about his circumstances. He could have sat there and said, God, I was anointed king. You told me I was going to be the king. And here I am running for my life and I've done nothing but help Saul. And he hates my guts because he's jealous and insecure and trying to kill me. Nope. He says, my lips will praise you, will glorify you because your love is better than life. There's nothing better in this world than the love of God, and David got it, and we can get it too, that's the heart of God for each and every one of us, do you believe that his love is better than life, do you believe it in here, not because it's Sunday morning, and it's easy to repeat it, or go along with it, but do you really believe it in here, and if you would say, if you're honest with yourself, you say no, well then let me tell you again, that's okay, just don't be content to stay there. For the love of God, don't be content to say, that's just not me. None of us are any more special than anyone else. The, the, somebody People used to say all the time, the, the ground at the cross, at the foot of the cross is level. We're all at the same place. We all have the same Bible. We all have the same Holy Spirit. We all have the same God that we serve. And his heart for us is that this would be our heart. That we would know that his love is better than life and there was nothing in this world that could steal our worship. Nothing can steal it, church. Nothing. But you know, well, something that can, that's an abomination, is self-pity. David could have been in self-pity here and said, you know, that Saul was chasing him. He never did anything wrong. And I wanna wanna say something today and I want you to hear me. Self-pity is from the pit of hell. Every time. It's from the pit of hell. And there ain't one of us in here or watching online that hasn't dealt with it. But that doesn't make it right. Just because you know Christians that are in self-pity doesn't mean, well, I can do it too, because they are too. No, it is straight from the devil. Because all it does is it takes your worship of God and it puts the worship on you or on your situation. And really, in reality, what you're doing is you're worshiping the devil by allowing yourself to stay in self-pity. Now listen, I'm not belittling what may have happened to you. You may be in a situation that is tough. As tough as what David was going through here. But it still does not give us any place for self-pity. Because here's the deal. God is faithful. He is faithful. He is, he is the same faithful and the same good to every one of us. His faithfulness is consistent across the board. It's the most consistent thing in the history of the universe. Is his love his faithfulness, His goodness, His mercy. It's straight across the board, right? So if someone on this side of the room has $10 million in their checking account and this somebody over here is struggling to make their mortgage payment, God is not more faithful to this person than He is to this person. God's faithfulness is the same. So our circumstances, our worship doesn't change because of our circumstances. Our worship is supposed to be consistent, too, because we're worshiping Him in His faithfulness and in His goodness and His mercy and who He is. That never changes. So we can worship Him if we have 10 million in the bank or if, we, or if our account's in the red. We can worship Him, because we're not worshiping, worshiping Him because of our circumstances. In fact, when we worship Him in spite of our circumstances, that is one of the most powerful things you can do. We don't worship God because we have no turmoil. We worship God in the turmoil. We don't worship God because we have no chaos, we worship God in the chaos. We don't worship God because we have no trouble, we worship God in the trouble. And I tell you today church, when we worship God in our situations, there is a supernatural thing that happens and God can break chains in our life, he can set us free, he can do miracles and do all kinds of stuff in our life. We miss out on a lot of God's miracle working power because we will not worship in the storm. It's truth. If we will learn to work, now, now listen though, because we can easily twist this. It's, that's not why we worship. I'm not just worshiping you because I'm trying to get something from you. It's about genuine worship. It's about worshiping, worshiping him saying, God, no matter what happens, it will not steal my worship. Nothing will steal my worship. Amen. Praise God. And you might say, well, I don't have anything to praise him for. Huh. Come see me after church. I'll give you a few things. If you have air in your lungs, you have something to praise him for. In fact, I'll take it another level. If you are on a ventilator and having help getting air in your lungs, you have something to praise him for. You always have something to praise your God for. Hear me, church. There, is, there are a few things more beautiful to the ears of our God than, than the worship of a follower of Jesus that's worshiping in the storm. It is one of the most beautiful things to the ears of God. It is like incense rising to his throne. The sacrifice of praise is a beautiful, beautiful, thing. it's fun to worship when, it's, when we feel it and we're on the mountaintop, that's fun. And God will be enthroned on those praises too. But man, there's something about someone that's just gone through hell that's still saying, mm no, no, devil, you're not taking my praise. I'm still gonna worship. It is extra special. And, it, and I'm telling you, there is a supernatural aspect to it that we can't explain, but God moves on our behalf. You can worship your way through anything. You can worship through anything. Sometimes, uninvited guests are allowed into our life, right? I mean, the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So anything that's uninvited into your life that brings darkness or brings turmoil in your life an uninvited guest, it's something God allowed, Right? Sometimes God will allow those things into our life for a season. It's not, to, it's not to hurt us or to harm us, but he allows it. He has purposes sometimes that are higher than ours. But here's the thing we can know. It, 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 may, it may come into our life. It may, there may be a season of it, but it's not forever. In fact, I want to read one more verse to you out of uh, Luke 22. This is when the, they came to arrest Jesus. They're finally going to arrest him and take him off to prison or, or to, be, to be crucified. And it says, then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers, the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Jesus said that. This is your hour. There had to be an hour of darkness for Jesus to be able to do what he did, right? There had to be people that were deceived to want to kill him so that he could actually pay for the sins of the world. Okay, sometimes in our life there will be an hour of darkness, but don't let it steal your worship. The psalmist said in Psalm 30, though sorrow may last for the night, and everybody knows the next part of this verse, because this is what we hang on to. Joy comes in the morning, okay? The Bible tells us sorrow's coming, but so is joy, and that's not a literal 24-hour period. That's a season, There may be sorrow for a season. There may be turmoil for a season. There may be chaos. There may be trouble. There may be hardships. There may be death for a season, but joy is coming. We can trust our God to know that joy is coming, and we can worship him through it, and when we determine we're not gonna lose our worship, sometimes we'll see that joy come quicker. We'll see breakthrough. We'll see miracles. We can be expectant that God can move in our life, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing would you stand with me, please? And I, will, I want to pray for us this afternoon. Thank the Lord. God is good. I want to invite you, if you want to come to the altar today, please feel free to do that. If you want to come up here and pray, I want to pray over all of us. If you're here today and you would say, well, that all sounds good, but I'm not even a Christian. Well, let me tell you, I'm glad you're here. You are very, very welcome in this place. But we don't want you to stay not a Christian. Because we believe wholeheartedly that this life is only a small fraction of what all of our life is going to be. We have to make a decision in this life to determine where we're going to spend the next life. So let me just ask you not to leave this place today without making that decision. And if you don't know how to do it, you're not sure what it looks like, I will be right up front here after service. I would be more than happy to pray with you and talk with you because we wanna give you that opportunity because it is a matter of life and death. We believe that with all our heart. That's why most of us are here today. But for those of you today that just say, man, I do have some things I can give to God that I haven't been giving. Chances are, everyone in this room is dealing with at least one of these three things that I mentioned, our dedication, our passion, or our worship. And as I say all the time and will continue to say, as long as I have platform, if that's the case, It's okay, but don't stay there. Let's repent. Let's turn from that. We as Christians should be living a lifestyle of repentance. We should be repenting all the time because none of us have figured out this walk of faith perfectly. In fact, there's no such thing. If you could, you wouldn't need Jesus. The Bible says to walk out your salvation with fear and trembling. So if this is you, if this is you, and you see I've failed in one of these or all of these, just repent. 1 John 1, 9 says it very clearly. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can walk out of here today with a clean slate. And then you make good decisions when you leave here. And then when you make bad decisions, you repent again. (laughs) We do it consistently. But I want to pray for you today. So bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, I bless you today. I thank you for your word. Lord, your word is is manna. We need it so desperately. God, we we long for our hearts to be good soil, where this word can produce fruit in our life. Lord, that is a supernatural experience that we cannot do on our own. There is nothing in us, in our flesh, that can go after you. But God, we can give ourselves to you. We give you today, we give you our dedication We give you our passion. We give you our worship. You are worthy of it all, Lord. And Lord, we know that the amount that we can even receive from you is proportional to our level of dedication and passion and worship. Lord, take us to that next level, Lord. Help us to take the next step in this walk of faith. Lord, we're not looking for everybody here to be spiritual giants. We just wanna take the next step. And Lord, where we have fallen short, we repent. We thank you for your forgiveness. Church, I just encourage you, just in your own words, you can just tell the Lord where you're at. You don't even have to say it out loud, just say it in your heart. God, we love you today. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for rest. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for your Son, and thank you for your Spirit that lives in us. Holy Spirit, come and have your way in each one of our lives. Help us to live for you, to glorify you, to crucify our flesh, to count the cost in following you, and, Lord, to never lose our worship. Hallelujah. Praise your holy name, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Can we give God one more hand clap offering today? Thank you, Lord.